0: This episode of The New Way We Work is brought to you by Verizon, the network America
1: relies on. This is Secrets of the Most Productive People, a productivity podcast where we work smarter instead of harder and dissect exactly how to get it all done. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor, Kate Davis. Today's episode is the next in our Reinventing Education mini-series, where we take a deep look inside the immense challenge of reopening schools. On last week's episode, we talked about how families are dealing with educating their children during a pandemic. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, don't worry. You don't have to hear it in order to understand this episode. But I do suggest that you go back and give it a listen because it includes some really eye-opening and honestly heartbreaking stories from parents about how they're struggling in this uniquely difficult time. This week, we are delving into the obstacles faced by teachers who are also faced with an impossible situation. How to completely change the way they have always worked to meet their students' myriad needs through platforms that were never intended to be used as a substitute for in-person classes. Or the flip side of that, report back to a classroom that has the potential to make them, their students, and their families very sick. Later this month, we'll hear from epidemiologists about how schools can deal with those inevitable outbreaks and how this massive problem for students, working parents, and the economy as a whole can be solved with both public and private policy solutions. But for today's episode, Fast Company contributing editor Lydia Dishman spoke with teachers all across the country to hear how they handled the shutdown and how they're preparing for the new school year. Lydia, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. Thanks for having me, Kate. So obviously the urgent issues that teachers are facing right now is how this school year, whether they're in schools or still virtual, is going to play out. But I want to start by going all the way back to March when everything shut down. There was a lot of panic, a lot of confusion, and I imagine that it was no different for the teachers that you spoke with.
2: Definitely, it was no different. People were scrambling. Many schools shut down between March and April and immediately went to virtual learning with a patchwork of Zoom, Google Classroom, and other technology. And all of the teachers I spoke to said that while they had some experience using tech like Google Classroom, the rest was on them to learn. Both they and their students had a patchwork of hardware available too, and connectivity was also an issue for some of them. Some of the teachers even told me that their schools were one-to-one, meaning that they gave their kids laptops or tablets, that every student in the school had one, but others had to rely on what was available at home, and not everyone had reliable Wi-Fi. So it wasn't ideal for the teachers, it wasn't ideal for the kids, and it wasn't ideal for the parents and caregivers. Everyone just had to figure it out. And something important to note as we talk about last spring is that no one really had any idea how long schools would be shut down. One of the teachers I talked to, Kimberly, who teaches fifth grade in a Los Angeles public school, told me that when schools shut down initially, they assumed it would only be for a few weeks.
3: So when we left that Friday, um, mm-hmm. it was with the assumption that we would be returning sometimes after our spring break, um, which was the first week in April. But then Mm -hmm. we kept getting notifications that kept pushing that out. You know, then it Mm -hmm. was May. And then it was, Mm -hmm. we will not be returning for this school year. We will return in the fall when school starts in August.
2: So you see, it's really no different than any other workplace, the uncertainty. How long is this gonna last? How do you move from an in-person model to one that's entirely remote? All of these challenges and questions had to be answered on the fly
1: yeah and the thing is that's different i mean there's a lot of parallels between that and all of the offices that went remote right but the the big difference is offices are much more equipped for that you know we were already like every you know company we were already using zoom a lot you know and Mm -hmm. and meetings with a bunch of adults on zoom while not Always ideal in the best situation and the same as they are in person are a lot more doable than teaching children over Zoom, keeping children's attention over Zoom. And as we talked about, you know, in, in the last episode, when you talk about public schools, you're dealing with children who are coming from, as you mentioned, a lot of different home situations, a lot of different economical situations, and a lot of different special needs situations. To try to reach all of those kids is such a big challenge in the in the classroom in the most ideal situation over zoom when you're scrambling and you don't know like is this for a few weeks is this for a few months is this going to be for the next year plus like it's it just sounds impossible so for kimberly at her school how did how did they handle moving lessons from the classroom to online Kimberly told me
2: that the school district tried to streamline things as much as possible. So they pulled a group of teachers from each grade level across the district and had them come up with lesson plans to upload to Google Classroom. So in theory, they had a small group that was working on something for the larger whole. So not all of the teachers had to be involved in every step of that.
1: So by April or May, most schools had decided that they wouldn't be coming back for that whole rest of that school year, correct? So they could make lessons plans through the end of the year?
2: For Kimberly, yes. She told me that around the beginning of May, which is coincidentally pretty close to the end of the school year, they were all aware that they wouldn't be coming back.
1: And and what did a week of school look like for her class once they kind of settled into this remote learning?
2: Well, this is the thing, and she clearly sounded like she was struggling with it. They were required to have two Google Meetings a week for a half hour each. But because a lot of families were affected by COVID and she and the other teachers didn't know how severely any of those families were impacted, the kids' work didn't have a due date and none of the kids were given letter grades. So here's the issue. Imagine you're back in school and you're given a bunch of lessons and work you're supposed to do, but it's not really gonna affect your grade or have any consequences really. Plus you're stuck at home. What would you do?
3: You know, these uh, savvy fifth graders, so they would just hit <laughs> the turn in button and then they'd just tell their parents, see, look, I turned in my work and the parents, oh, okay, great. But not actually checking to make sure that the work was done. So this mm-hmm. was 10 weeks of, you know, if you, you know, if you want to. Because we did not, the teachers were um, told not to stress families out. Um, You can, you know, make a suggestion and say, you know, don't forget to please turn in your work. Make sure that you turn in your work. But we couldn't go after students and say, hey, you didn't turn in this work. It was due on this day. That wasn't the Mm -hmm. case. So the work was Mm -hmm. optional. And unfortunately, Mm -hmm. the majority of my 32 students treated it like it was optional work.
1: Yeah, I mean, this gets to like the biggest stumbling block, right? And I've heard this in so many different forms of like kids are so hard to keep engaged again, like in the best of circumstances when you have them as a literal captive audience in your classroom. When they're at home with all of their toys and devices and videos and distractions and just like flopping around on their bed and like I know from having a four-year-old like trying to get him to focus on something same thing with you know and I heard the same from my nephew who's 15 is he had the same sort of situation he got a packet of of work to do but he's like it has no there's no grades there's no consequences like whatever I'd spend a little time on it and do whatever I wanted I mean that's that's kids that's people that's human nature like how do you keep students engaged in this kind of impossible situation?
2: Well, I think that in the best of circumstances, it's challenging, even though it's kind of counterintuitive because if you give even a two-year-old an iPhone, they can Mm -hmm. play on it happily for hours. Mm -hmm. But when they have to sit in front of it and have to do an activity, then it becomes a completely different prospect. So one of the preschool teachers that I spoke to, she was dancing in front of the camera (laughs) and making them sing songs and trying to get them to craft and do dances themselves to learn basic concepts like shapes and colors. While the high school teachers, they had to resort to some what I would consider sneaky methods to even get the kids to turn on their cameras.
1: Like what were the sneaky methods?
2: They would they would call on the individual student right in the middle of the lecture and ask that's
1: like the classic thing right when like even in the classroom when it's like you know that kid's not paying attention like kate what do you think of that And you're like snap to attention it's 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 funny because so my son had like virtual circle time Mm -hmm. which had varying degree i mean imagine a group of three-year-olds in a zoom meeting it had like Varying degrees of chaos, but he also took a virtual music class and the teacher was really good at exactly that. He would just mm-hmm. keep saying kids names like, and what do you think, Ben, and do that. And they like, it really kept the kids engaged when you talked to them and which is kind of like one of those tricks that like Sesame Street uses and some other like children's programming uses where they talk to the camera and like engage the kid. And like, you feel like you're part of it as opposed to, you know, a lecture or whatever that you can just tune out of.
2: Well, I think that's why Tina, for example, our my preschool teacher that I spoke to. She had a great deal of success because a lot of her Zoom meetings were one on one. There was virtual circle time, but most of her interactions were one-on-one. So mm-hmm. people knew that they had to sign in and had to be engaged that whole time. And then, of course, a three- or four-year-old can't turn off the camera themselves. Their parent is handling the they controls. They can shut the
1: laptop, though. They, they can find a way. <laughs> there's definitely <laughs> a lot of methods I've seen. Or just run away, just leave the room. I mean, there's so many... That's true. Things that, yeah. And and like all of these engagement issues are, are really hard to address kind of in the best, like we were saying, like in the best case scenarios of a bad situation. But the scope of this issue is just so... Wide. And on last week's episode, we heard from three families who are dealing with the challenges that are affecting millions of kids. For example, there's one family that has a seven year old who is autistic and nonverbal. So many of the services and therapies that he depended on in school weren't there or had moved online, which means that his parents kind of have to stay there with him and help him through all of these things and they can't work themselves and distance learning is just not ideal for almost all students but it's close to impossible for many special education students
2: you're absolutely right one of the educators i talked to kathy works as a social worker slash teacher at a high school in minnesota and she works with students who have severe emotional and behavioral disorders the distance learning setup was not ideal some of her students struggled just to show up to video check-ins?
4: So for my social-emotional learning class, um, it's there's work five days a week. It's just a little bit of work. It's a little check-in. But Mondays and Fridays, we were supposed to meet face-to-face at 10 o'clock. And I think one time I had three of my 10 kids show up, but usually it was one, and that kid was usually half asleep. And um, I never actually saw her face because she was upside down in her bed. And um, it just was, it's just really a struggle for kids to connect digitally. I mean, to... <laughs> You, that's not how relationships are supposed to work and, and again my kids are those evd kids who really look mm-hmm. to their teachers and their social workers for support and guidance all day long so this is mm-hmm. kind of like dropping them off a cliff
2: it's important to remember that education is so much more than just facts about history and math equations social development is important for every student and in the case of kathy's classes it's absolutely essential
4: our kids are very much um, Face to face kids and really mm-hmm. need those relationships to to do well and so it was it was very frustrating. Uh, in the end, I ended up going house to house every Friday to drop off paperwork and pick up paperwork, but it was really much more to see if families needed masks or if they needed any kind of resources in the community, but just to see kids and to see parents. But it was it was overall it was it was hugely disappointing and not very effective.
2: There are just so many layers to this. And like you covered in last week's episode, these challenges existed prior to the pandemic and are only heightened now. For example, not every student has a computer at home. That's a pretty basic thing. Not every student has consistent access to the internet, something that we as office workers take for granted. So the technology aspect of this is another learning curve, even when schools have the resources to fill in those technology gaps that some families
4: face. I work in St. Paul Public Schools, which is the district that's 77% free and reduced lunch, so 3 quarters of the kids live in poverty. So mm-hmm. some families had Wi-Fi. Um, other families, we brought hotspots, which were effective to some degree and not so, so much. Um, every kid got an iPad. But unfortunately, our kids weren't real savvy in how to use an iPad before we went on distance learning, so we had to play catch-up and t- teach them remotely how to use an iPad, which doesn't work out very well.
1: Yeah, these these problems of equality and access to internet and access to technology are such a big part of it. And it's something that I really want to dig into more. But but first before we do, what's Kathy and Kimberly, the two teachers that we've heard from so far, what's their plan for their schools right now in the in the fall?
2: Both Kathy and Kimberly schools will continue to run virtually, at least in the short term, as they periodically reassess the pandemic. As we know, anything can change at any time. Just look at New York City schools. But Kimberly, if you remember, teaches in Los Angeles, and they saw a resurgence of cases of COVID this summer. So Governor Gavin Newsom announced all California schools would remain closed at the start of the school year, which for Kimberly, who has asthma, is a relief. Despite the problems we've laid out with distance learning, none of this can be divorced from the health risks.
1: Yeah, I think that's such an important part of it to to mention because it is just, you know, like a lot of the debate is, oh, what's best for the students' education? But it's also, I mean, we're in a global pandemic. It's a health issue for, you know, for the students and for the teachers and then subsequently for their families and then subsequently for society at large. You know, we've learned so much about how disease spreads and And the risks of, of being in classroom are huge. And there's been so many stories that have come out from teachers who have their own health conditions or who have somebody who's immune compromised in their family. And so when they're asked to come into the classroom or mandated to come into the classroom, which we've seen in some school districts, it can be a very, you know, obviously any parent knows it's a very high contagion environment. Like you just kids just spread germs and it's like a Petri dish. And they're literally, these teachers are literally being asked to risk their lives, to, to, to do their jobs, a job that shouldn't be such a hazardous job. And I mean, when we're talking about this, I think we all need to remember that this is also not a high paying career choice. I mean, nobody goes into teaching to be rich the average pay for a a teacher in the, in the United States is about $57,000 a year. And most teachers have advanced degrees as well. So this is, this is a job where it's really, you're doing it because you, you love it and you're on a mission. And here we are asking teachers to risk their lives. And I believe, you know, for example, we're talking about About they you know people who might have immune compromise or be in a higher risk category, and actually the the number of teachers who fall into that higher risk category based on their age is is just shy of about one third. So one third of teachers are in this higher risk category, but we're still asking them to put themselves in the in the line of danger.
2: And just my anecdotal sample, I actually interviewed more than a third. Uh, Almost all of my teachers had some sort of risk that they were concerned about. My high school teacher in Missouri is actually pregnant, and Kathy is also in that category, the high school social worker from Minnesota. I asked her how she feels about the prospect of returning to in-person schooling.
4: terrifying And I work in a little school. My husband is 66, and he just retired. I'm, I'm 60, and I was planning to cheerfully work five more years. And, and to be honest, as summer has worn on, and the numbers have gone up throughout the country. And in the state of Minnesota, I'm, my brain is spinning in terms of, is there a way I, I can retire early? Um, is there a way I can move uh, to a lake up north and do something different? Um, so lots of lots of thoughts. I, I, I have a brand-new grandson who was born Tuesday, and so my goal throughout all of oh. it actually has been to stay well i'm 60 years old i'm in great health but i have a lot to live for and i don't want to get sick and i don't want to get anybody else sick so it's very scary
1: it's just it's so sad i remember reading during that the height of the pandemic how doctors were writing their wills because they just kind of assumed that 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 they might not make it and i've been reading recently that that some teachers who are being asked to return to the classroom are doing the same thing and it's it's just it's shameful and it's sad and yeah i can see how it's it's terrifying um we're going to talk more about how teachers are bracing for the new school year but first we're going to take a quick break This episode of The New Way We Work is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. Okay, and we're back. So Lydia, did any of the teachers that you spoke to, are any of them going back to in-person classes in the fall?
2: Yes. Two of the teachers that I spoke with previously had planned to go back to school in some way. The first, Owen, teaches photography and documentary filmmaking at a private high school in South Carolina. They are going back to in-person full-time. Then there's Jenny, the one I told you about who's pregnant. She teaches English at a public high school in Missouri, and her school is doing a hybrid model of in-person and virtual learning. This is how she described it.
0: So our hybrid, which I think is kind of a common hybrid, is that kids will be at school two days a week. And then we'll have one day of virtual. So um, the same group of kids will be at school Monday and Tuesday. Wednesday will be closed for a full virtual day. So teachers will still be there for like meetings and we still have to push out a virtual lesson. And then a second, like the other half of the group of kids will be there on Thursday and Friday.
2: Hybrid models do help schools maintain greater levels of social distancing. Some kids are in the building. Some kids aren't. So it isn't a full complement of kids. Considering that everyone is inside the whole day, though, most schools are mandating mask wearing to some degree. But remember, you're relying on a bunch of teenagers to adhere to that policy.
1: Yeah, which they, you know, might do to varying degrees or are probably not social distancing when they're outside of school, even, you know, even if they it is possible to in school. But. I mean, that touches on it, too, because it's not uncommon for public schools to be overcrowded over the last several decades. Class sizes have have grown and grown and grown, especially in in larger cities like New York and Los Angeles. And, you know, private schools and charter schools, you know, sometimes are more able to keep class size down. But throughout the the country, even the average public school size in, in mid and smaller size Towns is still it still hovers around like the low to mid 20s. So that's that's too many kids, even at that size.
2: That's certainly true. When you compare Jenny's school to Owen's, Jenny's public high school has a total of eighteen hundred kids and her average class size is around 30. Owen teaches at an independent slash private school that has four hundred and thirty kids and his classes are much smaller. He told me they cap the classes at 14. I think we should be clear, though, that the comparison of these two teacher-specific schools is anecdotal. But we do know that private schools generally have lower student-to-teacher ratios, and more importantly, they have more funding and more resources. So when I asked both Owen and Jenny what their schools were doing to prepare for returning to the classroom, the difference is striking. This is what Owen told me.
5: They're putting in the Uh, You know, the filtration system, I forget what it's called. I think it uses a type of ultraviolet light that will basically sanitize the entire school. Every building will have this system installed in the air conditioning system. And Mm -hmm. uh, it's supposed to achieve after, like, 30 minutes, like 99% virus kill. Uh, And it's even safer than having the the windows open in the classrooms. They
4: are
5: doing Plexi class barriers where there's uh you know high touch kind of areas. Uh they are doing they bought these atomizers that they'll be going through and cleaning constantly. They've increased the number of uh, full time uh custodial staff to help with the cleaning, the spray down everything, uh to atomize it. Uh they are they're investing they're investigating getting the thermal cameras that can read temperatures, you know, in a large room. It could track immediately if you had a fever. I know they're using those in some airports and places, but it's just incredible what they're doing. I mean, I just like I was kind of blown away.
2: And here's Jenny.
0: So they are providing the keepers with two cloth masks. I know that they are in like the lunchroom. As far as what I've read for our re entry they're putting in, like, plexiglass and stuff, like, in front of, like, the cashier for the lunch ladies, like, where they check where the kids can check out. Um, as far as sanitation, uh, last, hope oh, was it, last winter, kind of, like, December into January, our school had a bit of a whooping cough issue. So, we had, like, monk monk wipes, which are kind of, like, high-infectant, like, Clorox wipes, basically, where we wipe down desks all the time. So, um we probably will do something similar to that. Um, I will say I'm not 100% sure exactly what they're doing. Like they haven't really gone into a whole lot of detail about it. Um, I know that I've asked people to help me. Like I've made an Amazon wish list, so I've helped ask people to help me purchase like extra hand sanitizing things, like uh, hand sanitizer, extra masks for my classroom, um, just things to kind of help me feel a little bit safer. Um, again, I have a little bit of a thing against me just because I am pregnant. So that kind of puts me on a little bit of a higher alert as well. Um, but as far as what the school is providing, they are providing teachers with two cloth masks and then, I mean, they're, they're having sanitizing stations, I guess, but I don't know exactly what that means.
2: Jenny's school is doing all they can to keep people safe, but it's clearly a lot harder for public schools, in particular schools in lower income neighborhoods to fully reopen than schools with the circumstances and resources of the ones like where Owen works.
1: Yeah. And this is just a point that like cannot be ignored and it cannot be made en- enough. Like this is, I think one of the biggest issues that, that the pandemic is, is shining a light on is the the vast inequality in the public education system, in the education system in general, and just in America, like the the fact that you can have such like, you know, like those two teachers outline such very different experiences. And you know, even when you talk about public schools, just public schools, um, the 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 better funded school districts have more in place, you know, more resources for for special ed students, for sanitation, for, you know, all of those things, but also the the wealthier parents in the better public schools or the more funded school districts, also those parents are the ones that have the resources to say, "Oh, my public school is going all virtual this year. I really want to give my my kid Um, more advantages in in an in-person learning environment, I'm gonna switch them to a private school or a trend that we've been hearing a lot of is I'm going to create my own pod with a couple of other families and a couple of other kids and I'm gonna hire my own private tutor. And so it just is going to widen the opportunity gap where the kids that don't have the access to the Wi-Fi, that don't have the opportunity to just switch to a private school, that don't have the opportunity to get a private tutor, are going to fall further and further and further behind. And these kids that have already had the advantages are going to continue to get the advantages and their education isn't going to suffer. And when all of this is over and we're back to regular school, the the gap between those kids that already had a gap is just going to be a chasm and it's 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 something needs to change with that. You know, I think that that we have right now like such an opportunity to not turn away and ignore these big issues and and really make a big change. And that's that's something that we're going to touch on in a future episode is is what are the solutions to this problem? What are the policy solutions on a a government scale? And what are the the private sector solutions to this? Because this is, I think, you know, I really feel like this is the, one of the biggest issues wrapped up in all of this.
2: Well, and it's not just the education part of it. It's also the socialization part of it. Mm -hmm. Let's not forget New York City, the largest school district in the country, most, the majority of the kids enrolled in the New York City public school system are on free and reduced lunch that is a place that they need to go to eat so we're talking about an academic gap but we're also talking about these kids need to eat it's a basic basic need
1: i mean it's it's that and it's you know for a lot of kids too i know like in the the new york city public school system like you mentioned there's a lot of of homeless kids and it's a school is and for a lot of kids in in different family situations that are not the best. School is a safe place to go. You know, it's a place to like you said it's a place to get two meals a day. It's a place to have people that care about you, you know, have your teachers like the the relationship with kids and their teachers is so for good teachers is so special, you know, and it's so important. And when you talk about like socialization too, especially, you know, a lot a lot has been said about this, but especially for younger kids. So pre-K through elementary school, you know, that like involvement with their teachers, those relationship buildings, the involvement with the other kids, like that's so, so crucial. And yeah, the the wealthier parents get that too. You know, that's why they're creating their pods with their other kids and their kids are still getting those interactions. And these kids that are, you know, at home and their parents are essential workers or their parents don't have the, you know, the the resources to work from home. They don't, they're kind of just left to loose ends. And yeah, there's so much that they're missing out on.
2: So in talking about New York City public schools, New York and LA are some of the most segregated racially in the country. And we know that white students are overrepresented in private schools. They make up 69% of private school enrollment and comprise 51% of total enrollment of school age population in the country, while African American and Hispanic students are severely underrepresented in private school. The latter comprise over 25% of students in the public sector, but only 10% of students in the private schools
1: no matter the situation, whether a public school or a private school, you know, to to bring it back to teachers, there's still some assumption of risk when it comes to reopening schools in a, in a pandemic. So how are Jenny and Owen feeling about going back to in-person?
2: Well, surprisingly, Owen was pretty optimistic.
5: I feel remarkably safe, especially now that I've seen all the things they're doing. I also Uh realize there's a risk no matter what, Uh you know, you can get sick. Uh, you can get, you can get sick anywhere, but I also, as a teacher who I really love what I do, I love my students and the school, I feel, I just have a need to get back to that classroom.
2: As for Jenny, understandably, she's got more reservations.
0: Oh yeah, I am very nervous. I'm nervous about my... You know, this, this sounds ridiculous, probably, but, like, I'm nervous about high school students keeping their masks on <laughs> and, like, me not having to get in arguments with them about putting their masks on and staying six feet apart and all that sort of stuff. You would think that high school kids would be able to follow those rules pretty, pretty easily. But it's funny to me because my four-year-old is better about keeping his mask on than a bunch of adults are. Um, so I can only imagine what high school kids will be like.
1: Yeah. There's just so many unknowns when you talk about kids of any age and, you know, you think about it with adults too. You've seen so much pushback from adults with mass compliance and social distancing. And it just, it seems very unlikely that kids are going to adhere to all of these safety guidelines. And it it feels like such a massive problem. And it can feel sometimes like there is no viable solution. But but there really is some hope. So Lydia, be- before we go, I want to ask you, what's your kind of takeaway after talking to all of these teachers kind of all across the country in all of these different circumstances? Like what what did you kind of take away from what it means to be a teacher right now in the US? Well, it's interesting.
2: I think that I've experienced just talking to them, the incredible dedication and resilience of these individuals who made this career choice and are gonna do no matter what it takes to help their kids and get their kids through it. They often don't think about themselves first. And I think that that's a lesson for all of us is that this crisis has given us an opportunity to really examine the shortfalls in this country, to really examine the inequality that exists within the education system. And when you're relying on teachers to just figure it out, you know that there's something wrong, that we really have to address this head on. But I did want to share one last thing that Kimberly said to me, because I think that she summed up the crisis really well. She's the fifth grade teacher from L.A. that we heard from earlier. And when I asked her about what she thought would be the best possible scenario, the outcome of all this, what would be best for teachers and students, this is what she told me. Basically, it's this. We have to really decide what is most important, people's
3: lives or the education of kids. Because we, we find ourselves, this is what we have to choose. This is We have to make a choice. Because if you put the education of kids first and you send everyone back, and then people get sick and they die and they risk their lives and they gave their lives for the education of children. Or do you say health is more important and education will have to take a back seat? These kids are getting older, they're going to get older. But without education, what's going to happen to them? And unfortunately, in this country, education is not valued the way that it was. But if parents and teachers really and truly worked together, the kids in this country could learn virtually. It's not ideal, but the kids could learn. It's not ideal, but kids can learn.
1: Oh, I, I really hope that she's right. I'm, I really hope that we emerge from, from this school year in a better place than, than we're starting it. Lydia, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your reporting with us. It's This has been such an important conversation. Thank you for having me. That's all for this episode. Be sure to subscribe to Secrets of the Most Productive People wherever you listen. And we want to hear from you. Are you a working parent? A teacher? Let us know how you've been handling remote learning and school reopenings by leaving us a voicemail at 833-582-FAST. That's 833-582-3278. Or you can tweet us with the hashtag FCMostProductive or send us an email at mostproductive@fastcompany.com. This episode is part of our Reinventing Education series. You can find the entire series on fastcompany.com, including this article by Lydia Dishman with additional reporting and writing by assistant editor Diana Shi. If you liked this episode, please let us know. Leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Secrets of the Most Productive People is produced by Joshua Christensen.